today we are so excited and honored to be here with Joy Lieberthal-Rowe, who is an amazing colleague and friend. Joy is an advocate for mental health and wellness within the international adoptee community, a social worker, a trailblazer, and a visionary. Joy is also a founding member of also known as Inc., and is a creator of IamAdoptee.org. Welcome, Joy, and thank you for joining us today. We so appreciate your enthusiasm and also the support for this podcast. I'm so excited to be here today. We're going to talk about like my favorite topic in the world to talk about. Uh, Well, and that's the thing. When I have been in conversation with you and just in community, you have been somebody on the forefront of um, my mind and just our minds of really thinking of who to really bring in so much wisdom, experience, incredible knowledge about this area that we're really hoping today to focus on around being a mom, being a parent, the maternal mental health aspects of that, right? Um, Because you have the clinical hat as well as the personal, very personal experiences. So thank you for saying yes to this conversation more formally and and just really excited that you will reach the ears of so many of our our listeners. You know, I think to start us off, really something that we always ask our guests, you know, at the beginning is really sharing in curiosities around where you are now as a parent, what are say the top three parenting themes that you're experiencing or meditating on these days. Well, first, thanks for having me. My current situation is that I am parenting two teenage boys. It's ironic because I grew up in a family of all girls. So having two sons has been an interesting challenge all by itself. So they're 14 and 16 cisgendered boys. They're both fully ethnically Korean American. I think my first priority is just to find the balance between two very different personalities and two different stages in their lives. My first one at 16 is going to be a senior in high school and is looking to launch and college applications. And my 14-year-old is still trying to figure out who he is and what his passions are in life. And just to make sure that I do justice to the individual person and their personhood. My first is very academic and very driven and focused on college. My second is more musical. He's a feeler. He's more, yeah, he's my pulse. I call him my barometer. I think my second thing is their social lives. You know, when they're little, we can arrange play dates, not just for ourselves, but for them. We can kind of direct them and guide them on the kinds of friends they have. And now it's all hands off. You know, you just need to be lurking and witnessing and reflecting back in words what you're seeing and hoping they make good choices. It's their peers that matter to them more than me at this point. And I think my third priority is that they are Asian American boys. My husband is Korean American. And so really nurturing our relationship as partners and as Korean Americans in America right now feels really important to set an example for them as to what kind of men they're going to grow up to be. Mm. So that's my priority right now. Yeah. You know, I want to pause a moment on that because I'm just hearing how much, especially as your boys are older, right? I know in our community, we have kind of a range, I think, of where some of the the older adoptees or the first wave, you know, have older children as well, even older some, right? And, and then also at this 
teenage going on young adulthood and then now so many younger, you know, just giving birth and having newborns or just kind of in the toddler age or I think even with Nari has, you know, a little bit older, but not quite a tween yet. Um, but, you know, so there's quite a range. And, and so do you notice your priorities have shifted, you know, in terms of what you've identified now versus, you know, when you were a new parent? You know, I think I benefited from doing this work on the outside looking in as an adoption social worker at an agency, running parent groups and coaching as best as I could in my 20s, new parents, new adoptive parents. So I got to be able to learn from observing how other people were parenting. And I think those lessons really informed the kind of mother I wanted to be. I was constantly taking notes in my head. So I think in the beginning, it was really about meeting milestones and keeping up. And now I feel like I'm able to really just take them in as people because, you know, the daily feeding and, and sleeping and diaper changing and all those minutia of daily life is no longer a part of my priority. It's, it's up to them. If they're hungry, they eat. And so I think it's really just about kind of being able to see the full landscape of them and, and the bigger picture instead of getting really drilled down to the details of their day-to-day, which is hard because we're really good, I think, as caregivers, we're good at the minutia. We're good at being able to know how to feed our babies, actually, but we're not so good at being able to nourish them. And so in the nourishing of them is really a little bit more of like getting out of their way so that they can figure things out. For me as a mom, that's what I've had to learn is when to pull back and be more strategic about when I engage with them. Whereas when they're little, you can just pick them up and just move their bodies. (laughs) That felt a little bit more capable. I felt more capable. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I just said to my husband the other day, I'm like, I just love being able to just scoop them up in one arm and just carry them wherever. And now they can probably carry me at this point. So I love what you said, Joy, about feeding versus nurture or nourishing uh, your children, just the nuances of what that means and just how you are articulating that. And just kind of wondering for you, as you are pulling back and you are seeing more of the landscape versus the details, how that's changed your perspective on your own like parenting journey as an adoptee. Are you starting to see patterns or the imprints of what you were trying to pass on to your children? What are you seeing in the larger landscape? I think when I found out I was pregnant and it was a viable pregnancy that was going to come you know, go full term, I got myself in therapy. And it's ironic being a social worker and working in the service of others to not take care of myself was never something that I prioritized. So I think when I found out I was going to be a mom, I really focused on my mental health. I knew I could take care of my body and the baby was going to do what it was going to do. But I had a pretty complicated adoption story. And so I really wanted to make sure that, as I said to my first therapist, I don't want the poison to seep into me and into him. And so going to therapy was really important. 
being engaged in the therapeutic process was really important. It was really important to heal. It was really important to put a chronology to my story. It was important for me to say out loud what my story was. I think oftentimes when we work in adoption, we're really great at hearing other people's stories. And I was clocking how mine was different and the same, but I never really talked about it. I think we have a pretty good idea of how we want to present ourselves to the world, but I had a lot of secrets. I was holding a lot, and I realized those were not secrets that I needed to hold anymore, and I definitely did not want that to be a part of my children's stories. So I felt like that was really important. I thought going to Korea was really important for me as well. I had already been in reunion with my birth mother, and An opportunity came up for me to be able to travel to Korea during my third trimester, and I did it. My doctor never said no. (laughs) He did say afterwards, he was like, I wasn't going to say no. Your face did not give me any indication that no was an option. I'm really glad my birth mother got to see me pregnant. So that felt really important. And I think that just knowing that my body was doing what it was supposed to do after a couple of not so good experiences trying to get pregnant that it felt happy and relieving. And both my pregnancies, even though my second, I had gestational diabetes and I was hungry all the time. I was happy, emotionally happy and excited about seeing the the humans that were going to come into the world and who they were. Simultaneous to mental health is also just self-care. And I know that's an overused term, but Pregnancy allows you to be selfish and the world allows you to be selfish, right? You're creating life. So there's accommodations and it never occurred to me to, to get that sort of attention. It doesn't come naturally to me to be seen and people saying lovely things and hopeful things to you while you're pregnant, that the world is joyful to see you pregnant. That was an interesting physical occurrence. I remember one of my friends saying, I love being pregnant. People like made room for me, gave me seat on the subway for me. And I was like, yeah, I forgot about that. You know, I forgot about the care that the society gives to pregnant women in a way. That was a lovely situation that I wasn't anticipating. Yeah. I love the emphasis that you also shared about just really doing your own work at the beginning, right? The maternal mental health aspects or the the mental health pieces. And and I think I find myself currently in that too, as like a clinician. And then also just knowing that, you know, it's important to really, because so much can come up or really be activated, you know, at all points. And so I'm wondering, you know, I think something also in our conversation earlier, we were talking about just really some reparative experiences that, you know, you have maybe had with your own children or at different points in them growing up and um, the impact of those. And if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit more about maybe what those were like or what you noticed. Early on, I wanted to nurse my children. It was very, very important for me to have that physical connection and felt very fortunate that my body did what it was supposed to do. Not so fortunate that they never took to a bottle. (laughs) So I became the human pacifier for quite a long time. (laughs) So my wish was a bigger wish than I anticipated. So that was really important. And I think the other really profound milestone for me was when my children hit the year that I came to America, the year that I was adopted. 
the year that I was separated from my birth mother was nebulous. So I didn't really have that as a marker. But when my first turned six, I was really hit with a ton of depression in a way that I didn't anticipate. I was just really cranky on his sixth birthday. And it occurred to me that I was physically going through a different moment as he was celebrating his sixth birthday and all that that entailed. And just watching him navigate the world and see who he is and his his versatility with language and knowing who his family is and knowing who he is and his address, his telephone number, even saying like, I know I'm a boy and I know who I am and I know where I live and I know what colors I like and what toys I like. And just the knowing and seeing a body that is a replica of who I was at that time was deeply profound. And I think the depression was just the sadness of knowing that, I guess it was a sadness for myself. It was really just acknowledging that my life was and will always be slightly different than his, but super grateful that he doesn't have to experience such major ruptures in his life at such a tender age. And when my second turn six, while the depression didn't hit, just knowing his personality and how fiercely connected and attached he was specifically to me, I just looked at him thinking, there is no way in hell this kid would have survived an adoption. None. He would have been forever complicated from being adopted if his if our connection was suddenly ruptured in any kind of way and just watching their personalities and how they make sense of the world. I'm a little bit in awe of my six-year-old me that I survived that. That birthday was very, very significant for both of them, for me and for them. Yeah. And I think there are other little moments of just what I expect, you know, we go through a stage of trying to be the good adoptee and in the being the good adoptee, we make everybody happy at the sacrifice of any sense of contentment or safety for us. And there are a few moments in their young life that I remember saying, I caught myself saying out loud, well, when I was their age, I did blah, 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 you know. And my husband was like, yeah, but did you like it? <laughs> did you want to do it? And, you know, he really kind of put me up straight in that I didn't have a choice but to survive a certain circumstance they do not have those certain circumstances to survive. They can be whatever and whoever they want to be. And that discrepancy, I caught myself several times when they were little with mismatched expectations and feeling a little devastated that I was projecting something onto them that was not theirs. It was totally mine. It's happened less now as they're older because, you know, they're just bigger humans and they know themselves better. But even in watching them as bigger humans and just kind of in awe of their, their comfort, their two-footedness in the world, they know they're Korean, they know they're American, they are very sure of their sense of humor, their wit, their brain, and they're not inhibited by that. Yeah, they definitely move in the world differently. And, I, and sometimes I excuse it as, oh, they're boys, but I think it's also that they have had nothing but a very peaceful, steady existence in the world where they're constantly being affirmed of who they are. Minus those major ruptures that I had to experience, I can see an alternate version of life through them in some ways, which is very humbling 
and really joyful to watch. I'm hearing from you just this incredible juxtaposition and and kind of this adoptee double consciousness, you know, of just the joy and the grief and the healing, but then also what the healing does is reflects the loss and the pain that we went through. These corrective experiences can illuminate our own pain while we're also healing the next generation. Also, too, just as an adoptee, too, the the gaslighting can end with us, you know, where we get to acknowledge all of the abundance of feelings and experiences and not just have to focus on the happy and the good and the uncomplicated surface level stuff. I'm glad that I got, I was able to parent in my 30s as opposed to in my 20s. I think I would have been a very different parent. That consciousness of understanding that I was undoing and redoing. I've said that often to my clients as well, whether we're parents or not, in our choosing the kind of life path that we want, whether it is to parent or whether it's a career or whatever life decision we're making, that there is the undoing and the redo and that the agency on us to be able to do the redo is such a strong sense of resilience and sign of resilience of who we are. Yeah, that's, I think, something so important to to remember, you know, in the thick of it, because I think that's the other part, right? That when you are becoming a new parent, I mean, you're just, yeah, you're trying to survive and thrive and keep this little one alive as well. And that this is where I think the, the layered intersectionalities of adoption come in, right? And, and how it can knock the wind out of us, but also really give us an opportunity to really soar, right? And to really try so many things out maybe that we didn't have the opportunity to, or we wanted to really make sure that we intentionally were, were doing in our own parenting and our own work. I think that leads me to the question around, I was listening, you know, the other day at the con conference as well to the Becoming Appa, you know, recording, and it was just phenomenal, right, to hear this perspective. And, you know, I'm wondering outside of, you know, not only the the father, but also just the the mother, you know, experience as a BIPOC adoptee parent, you know, what would you want other BIPOC parents, and I'm going to bring it a little bit more general there, to have access to, um, knowing what you've gone through, knowing your own experiences, and, and personally and, and professionally? Yeah. I think it's really important in what you're doing in this podcast is giving so much hope Especially, well, my generation had less to do with our adoptive parents having infertility, but the younger generation behind me, infertility was a very big elephant in the room, frankly, as to how adoption has been perpetuated in this country. I remember when I was pregnant the first time, there was another adoptee that I was working with, and she just said, can I touch your belly? And I said, sure. As she started crying, she said, you know, looking at you, I know this is possible for me. And it didn't occur to me that that would be a, that would be something. And so, you know, she said, you know, my, my adoptive mom was infertile or had fertility issues. And so I know why I'm here. 
And so she said, my biggest fear was that I wouldn't be able to get pregnant. And looking at you, maybe I can. And so just the idea of will we become parents was such a profound question for her. It was such a regenerative moment for both of us. I have a cohort of women friends who are all adoptees as well. And so there's about seven of us and most of us are mothers and, and through birth. And just to watch all our bodies changing and becoming pregnant, I think it was really important for me to take care of their bodies too. And I brought milkguk for them when they delivered their babies to the hospital and just finding that community is really important. Having an ad- other adoptee parents is really important, whether it's through the internet or whether it's personal, in-person connections, just knowing that one, it's possible, two, you are not alone in this process, and to really acknowledge that our bodies are different. <laughs> I don't know how to say it other ways. Like, you know, I, I just think that our bodies are different than the typical Asian American body. We've gone through a lot of different things. And so our pregnancies will be different. All the things that we expect prenatal care is different. Being able to advocate for ourselves and say, we have a blank medical chart. What do we do to make sure that that medical chart accurately expresses who we are and how our health is during our pregnancy and post-pregnancy? Really, you know, whether you want to give birth through home birth, doula, doctor, that they all really understand that they're not dealing with a typical pregnancy in any kind of way. No, no two pregnancies are alike, of course. But I, I did a discussion one time with a group of prenatal doulas, and they had never asked if any of their clients were adopted. It occurred to them that then maybe they should, because our bodies are having traumatic response as well as normal, healthy developmental responses to pregnancy. And when do they intersect? How well do we take care of our bodies? Do we know how to take care of our bodies? And if our adoptive parents and if our adoptive mother had never gone through pregnancy to term, they cannot help us. They can't be in the delivery room because they they don't know what to expect. Those are really, really important to learn to advocate for ourselves, to find community for ourselves. When I delivered my first child, my, mo- my adoptive mother was in the room and I was so conscious of her body in the room. I kept covering myself up. Here I am trying to push out this 10 pounder and I'm constantly keeping myself covered. She didn't know how to help me. And I kept saying, mom, would you like to go get a cup of tea? (laughs) Would you like to go get a cup of tea? Because I didn't, she couldn't connect to me. She couldn't help me through the breathing. My, My husband was right there. He was much more engaged in the process and did everything I needed, but I was so conscious of her body there and knowing that she couldn't relate to anything I was going through, couldn't help me through anything, couldn't give me any predictive markers of what I was going to go through. And I was so worried about how she was feeling during that process. I'm sure I delayed my delivery by at least four hours because of that. And yet on the other side of it, I remember doing a presentation and there was a adoptive mom there talking about being in the delivery room when her daughter was giving birth. And she said, you know, I kept thinking like, is this grandchild mine too? Do I get to claim this grandchild? And so just to hear other perspectives was really informative for me. So that sense of entitlement, of being present, 
is really, really important at the end of it, just to come in for a landing on this answer is really just to find community to be able to talk about it. Right. And, and to be able to be in a room full of other bodies that are pregnant who understand that it isn't just about baby. Um, the, the mother has to be really cared for. It's really, really important. Now, even going forward, whenever I know a friend is giving birth or is going to have a baby, it is utmost priority for me to always include something for her, not just for the baby. So a, a little thing of tea, cookies, something else just for her and her body to take care of her. Thank you so much. I mean, everything that you just said, the 360 view, you know, just the ripple effect of adoption throughout across the families, across the generations, of course, bringing new life into the world is going to affect the older generation and also the effects on the adoptee and the baby they're bringing in. And I think you bring up such incredible points about belonging and who gets to claim who and just all of those really profound, deep, unspeakable, sometimes, oftentimes feelings and fears that come up. The caretaking that we do as adoptees for our adoptive parents, even while we're in the throes of birth, it's so profound. I think what you said about especially maternal self-care is so, so poignant and significant, especially for our community. And I personally experienced and know other adoptee mothers who uh, maybe in retrospect were like, I should have gotten help you know, during pregnancy or during postpartum, but I didn't, I didn't even really know that I could get help or that what I was experiencing maybe even in the moment was even out of the ordinary. And if you could describe like what, if a new parent kind of has this inkling that maybe they need some extra help or they might need some resources, or even if they don't, if they notice themselves doing certain things, like that might be a sign that they should reach out and what, where do you think they should reach out? Like what are those essential resources? I think we're really good at trying to be perfect. Really just setting the tone of just how tired we physically get in parenting and being able to clock that we're tired is really important. And I know that OBGYNs are much more attuned to the mother now about just clocking postpartum depression. They ask more questions, but I mean, even long to, long after you have kids, I notice different questions that get asked even now at my GYN appointments. So something is changing in the world of obstetrics and gynecology where it isn't just about baby and milestones and how much they're eating. But, you know, knowing that even any of those questions is so triggering for the mother. So, yeah, I think postpartum depression is is very, very important. And it's not just three to six months after baby. It's a year after baby. It's two years after baby. The reality is our bodies really just don't go back to some semblance of stasis at least two years after baby. And if you have a couple of them, if you have babies close in consecutive order, your body isn't your own till maybe five or six years. I remember thinking like standing outside of um, elementary school with my kids, I was noticing that the moms that had fifth and sixth graders 
their bodies were different. They started to lose weight. The baby weight was starting to come off. They were changing their hair color. It was almost like they were coming into fuller bloom. And I was like, oh, we got to wait till fifth or sixth grade for this. <laughs> it's not three to six months postpartum. I was like, Oy, I got no, I got a few more years on me before I, I can be less hard on my post-baby body, right? It just gave me some compassion to realize that it takes a long time to get back to stasis. We're never going to get back to pre-baby body ever. Let's just face that. But I think that just watching the ways the different moms' bodies were moving and and some of them were choosing to go back to work. So maybe that's why they were a little bit more gussied up, if you will. But I was just clocking. I was like, okay, by fifth or sixth grade, I can start really thinking about like, what kind of body do I want to have for the rest of my life? You know? So yes, postpartum, much longer than just postpartum. And again, because mental health professionally is so slow to catch up to where we are. We're such a interesting little microcosm of a community because adoption as a story is so sensationalized in this country, but they don't think about the bodies, right? So we still think about adoption from a kid's lens. We don't think about 40, 50-year-old women's bodies who are adopted, who don't know their bodies, right? So I think more and more, I've had clients who are doulas and we've had lots of conversations about their education of childbirth and what they're going to then impart onto their clients. Getting an opportunity to speak in front of other doulas and postpartum nurses about adoption was really great because it got them thinking about asking questions that they never would have thought to ask. And then also then the symptomology that they're seeing is going to be so different. It's not a pathology. It's a normal, right? I mean, that's really what we're really doing is anything we can do to normalize the experience of being adopted. That's the essence of what this is all about, really. Our normal just looks different. It feels different. And to honor that, again, back to self and understanding what we really need. So do I need my mom to be there two weeks after delivery? Or do I actually need her six months after delivery when I'm so tired that I can't see straight and I need another human to hold this child? So, you know, how to be able to say what you need and when you need it and not be embarrassed, you know, and, and, you know, and just talking to clients who are new mothers, you know, they've never heard of a doula. They think only about birth doulas. They don't think about postpartum doulas. You know, I was like, just some other person whose priority is just to take care of you. Everyone wants to take care of the baby, but you're the main source of all of it. So you know, more and more paternity leave is happening. Does it make sense for paternity leave to happen right at the same time as maternity leave? Maybe not, you know, to stagger that. Being versatile in the language of care and what it is you need and who you need it best from. Okay, so your mother-in-law's coming. Is that helpful or is that not helpful? And is it helpful to you or is it helpful to her? You know, so, you know, really just asking those questions it just gets the juices going of like, right, we're now changing the demographic of this family. And I also think that, you know, hormones aside, becoming a new parent does entitle you to be a little more demanding. The bandwidth is a little bit stretched and you can say, 
no, thank you. I don't need that right now. Come this time. And because now we have a new North Star, it's the well-being of the child. And so that's a really great excuse for bailing out on family gatherings you don't really want to go to <laughs> and also fight for that those relationships you do want to fight for. Appreciate all of that wonderful <laughs> reminders, advice, you know, the essentials. And, you know, I loved even that last part of thinking of the new North Star, right, that you're really, you're looking at or you're focusing on. And also just, I think what also is so unique right now is, you know, even as we're recording, we're still kind of, you know, in this pandemic going on and what that's been like for, you know, the current parents who have been pregnant or have delivered during this time. And also just how much that's really forced them to really be able to have so much more solitude or time with their baby and with as a new family and separate from the external family or factors that, I think so much before, you know, even that adoptee guilt comes in, right? I know that's such a core theme and issue of, ooh, I'll feel bad if, you know, so-and-so isn't, you know, getting that message right away after I deliver or whatever that is, you know, and now we're kind of on a whole new kind of way of navigating time and space because this pandemic, in some ways, I do wonder how that's, you know, helped our community in so many ways because I hear from other adoptees how it's been really kind of nice to be able to just kind of focus on our needs and not be so concerned about everyone else that you aren't seeing day to day anymore um, in certain capacities. So I appreciate, yeah, just how your, you know, center has really been also on really supporting the new mom or the parent, right? Because it can get lost in, I think, the constellation of things. I think I must have read like every sleep book in the world, but I think it was Dr. Karp that said, you know, the baby's going to do what the baby's going to do. It's very primal. The source is the thing that needs to be taken care of. And I think, you know, in some ways we say that in attachment, in the work of attachment is that the child has no choice but to attach, you know, so we focus so much on childhood attachment, but really it's the adult and how we attach and how we make room and how we gaze at our baby. I have to stick it in here because it is my favorite thing to say about parenting. And of course, it comes from Toni Morrison. She said something, I forget what interview it was, but she said, do your eyes light up when your child walks in the room? And I just love that. You know, she's like, no matter what I was doing, I always made sure that my eyes lit up when my son walked in the room. And it really reoriented my priority. Instead of trying to do, I needed to be. And so whether it was at pickup or whether it was after a bath or first wake up in the morning or a really crazy late night and couldn't sleep, do my eyes light up when I see his face and he gets to see that gaze. It was a small mantra that I kind of kept saying to myself, especially after the second child who was much tougher to soothe and to feed and to sleep and all of that. I was just like, but your eyes have to light up when you see that kid. <laughs> Thank goodness he smiled on time. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one. Pivoting a moment about just where we are right now and where you are, you know, and, and just thinking about us collectively, you know, at least us in the room here today, we've really been, you know, in tune with the Korean adoptee community, particularly and really but thinking about just as BIPOC parents collectively, where are we, you know, headed? Where, you know, what's coming next for us? Where do you see us 
going. You're such a visionary and I know you just really see such a bigger picture and perspective. So, so curious about where you see we, we are headed. I feel like we're finally at young adulthood as a community. I'm so excited about your podcast because it gives me a sense that we're starting to grow up a little bit more. I mean, I don't mean that to be disparaging, but I think that we always have new members in the community, no matter what their chronological age is. So there's always that community of newly discovered adoptees, new to the community, new to the word adoptee, new to advocacy and self-identification as an adopted person. But more and more of us are at a stage in our life where we are actually being the subject or the data points to actually look at other stages of life. So what I mean by that is we kind of had to wait for a bunch of us to want to be parents or become parents in order to start talking about parenting. There wasn't going to be anybody ahead of us to pave the way for us. So we're doing that now. So I think that stepping out of just what it's like to be an adoptee and stepping out of our relationship to our adoptive parents, stepping out of do we search or not search? Now we're talking about our aging bodies. We're talking about parenting. We're talking about death and dying. So I'm seeing those conversations getting more nuanced and also love the fact that as our collective group ages, we are taking ownership of the story more. So it's adoptees doing research on being parents. It's adoptees doing research on launching as a young adult. Now it's adoptees talking about being parents. I think the the fact of the matter is that is the only way that our community will grow is when we ask our own questions to ourselves. We keep being that social experiment of like, how are we doing? And I love the fact that we stopped asking everybody else how we're doing. We're asking ourselves, how are we doing? So that's really encouraging to see that there's room for other conversations beyond just the adoptee identity, whether we search or we don't search, and our connection to our birth culture. That our place in American society is becoming more rooted. That our children understand our story. Uh, The first time that my son met my birth mother, he was four, and she lived with us for three months. And then the first time I heard my seven-year-old tell my five-year-old my adoption story so that my five-year-old could better understand what does adoption mean is deeply profound. So just seeing what's happening for the next generation, that adoption doesn't just begin and end with us, that it is actually part and parcel of the legacy we leave our children and then their children you know, my kids could pass as being Korean Americans. They've got a Korean last name. No one would even know that adoption has impacted their life in any way. But I think it's been really a significant aspect of their identity. We've gone back to my orphanage. They know where I grew up. They've seen where I used to play outside. They've met my orphanage brothers and sisters who are now adults and parenting. And that is as much a part of their story as their harmony and harabuji that they get to see on a regular basis on my husband's side of the family. And my husband has, you know, volumes of books with an entire family lineage of the Roe family, which is wonderful. But then they also see that mommy doesn't have a birth certificate. And what does that mean? So, you know, I think that just being able to see all of that and talk about it 
and see others are talking about it and then creating research around it and, and interviews around it, giving us permission to be adults and talk about very adult issues. I think that's really important and hopeful. And I, I feel like that's progress. That, that's the developmental milestone that we're starting to hit, which is, which makes sense. It's about time. Yeah. Just like what you're saying about being our own advocates and bringing our attention back onto ourselves in order to help heal each other and ourselves and in community is so, so powerful. And I also just think about kind of the strength that it takes to live in an adopted body and what you, you said about kind of passing onto your children, these stories. And what I hear so much of is you're passing onto your sons this ability to hold complexity and that they do get to live and are living a Korean American experience. And they have other aspects of their story that are more complicated and they have learned at this point. I mean, your oldest son met your birth mom at age four, like their whole lives, just this incredible life skill, this skill that expands spirit, expands their emotional range. And I just think like, what a gift for them, from you, that hard earned skill, you know, that came at a great cost. What are the other labors of love that you are doing right now in your life, aside from parenting your two sons? I think the thing that I am always in love with is that my own community of adoptees. So IamAdoptee.org is still like my love letter to my community in a way that it's an act of service, but it's also an act of love, right? How do we care for each other? How do I convey that I haven't just been some random person living her life, that I've been watchful? I've been on watch and I have taken in some things. And if it's helpful to just one other person, then I've accomplished something valuable in the world, right? We need to know that there is a purpose to our story. If this website is the, an extension of me seeking that purpose, then that's my thing. But married to that is my love for the Korean American community. I think more than being adopted, being Korean in America has been my personal quest of understanding. Being able to code switch within the Korean American community has always been really important to me. I had a conversation with the drumming instructor for a culture camp that I run here in New, in New Jersey, and the entire conversation was over the phone and in Korean. And I hung up and my husband was listening and he started clapping because he knew exactly what I was going to say afterwards. I'm like, I did it. I did the entire conversation in Korean. And she understood me and I understood her. Yeah, that's a really hard earned moment of glee. And it is not pride. It's just pure glee. Like I did it. I was so excited. And being able to own both parts of that identity for me has been so important. And I think also by extension, really important for my children to see that just because you are doesn't make you are. You have to do the work to be fully, fully realized in that identity. It's not something you just cruise through. Uh, it's not always an entitlement. 
being able to speak Korean was, has been and continues to be the thing that I seek to do. And I work really hard at being able to do that. But language and culture are so intricately connected. So I also think understanding and speaking Korean culture is really important. So that continues to be my obsession, I think. <laughs> I don't know if it'll ever end. I, I think maybe I need to go to Korea one more time to kind of get all the ants out of my pants about it. But those, those are my two things that I work on on the side. Well, I'm going to say not just little things. Those are really big, amazing, beautiful things. And I love that the, when you have those moments of I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I have been there and totally feel that with you and just want to you know, just so much acknowledge the incredible work that you're doing with I Am Adoptee and the, the gifts that that is bringing, not only right now, but I know there's just so many neat things up the pipeline that you will be, you know, putting out into the adoptee world and so eternally grateful for that. What a love letter. And you are so deeply seen and and felt. Um, so I think an incredible labor of love. That's not a small um, task, but you have made it into such an incredible quest. And, and thank you for continuing to offer that. And and just want to really thank you for joining us today and engaging in such a wonderful conversation. I could listen to you forever and <laughs> drink tea and just soak you in. And just want to thank you so much for providing, you know, this opportunity for us to hear, you know, so much wisdom and experience, um, professionally, personally, but just really your offerings to our community has already made such a mark, but will continue to. So thank you for being in, in holding space today with us. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful for your listening and for joining our community effort to center and amplify the voices of BIPOC adoptee parents. Please spread the word and invite friends to like us, follow us, and share us on Instagram at Labor of Love Podcast. And if you want to support our podcast, you can Venmo us at Labor of Love Podcast. Thank you for tuning in.